0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW group void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio, Ruby Studio, and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: If you're a member of any of the groups or if you do any Google searches at all, you'll see that there's so many different theories and people tend to take sides. Uh, And that's great to have that type of discussion, but a lot of times it uh, turns negative negative. We have to refocus on what it's about, why are we all here in this room, and it's for one one reason, and that's Mara. So we need to, you know, whenever our our azimuth is not shooting in that direction of where is Mara, we need to redirect it. And um, I think within the last, I would say, year two years, we've done a really good job on redirecting our azimuth and and focusing the attention where it needs to be on, on Mara.
3: Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? Look at me. I'm doing great. How are you today? I am doing great as well, and uh, and you look great, Lance, on Zoom. You too. <laughs> Thanks. And, uh, and Lance, for this episode, it's kind of a bonus um, because most of this is previously released uh, recordings. Um, This is from our CrimeCon 2019 panel that we did down there in New Orleans um, with the good people of CrimeCon, and Julie Murray joined our panel. It was you, me, Art Roderick, former uh, U.S. Marshal, was there, and Maggie Freeling was there, investigative journalist. Of course, she does the new podcast, Unjust and Unsolved, so make sure to check that one out.
1: And you really nailed it, Tim. CrimeCon did a great job. Allowing us to speak on that panel with members of Moore's family. Julie, we had other members of the panel there. It was a full panel and they welcomed it. They set up extra mics for us. And what we're doing with this episode here is, I guess, in a way, sort of really uh, hitting people over the head with Moore Murray because. This is what we're supposed to be doing, right? We're supposed to be giving information. We're supposed to be raising awareness. And we're supposed to never forget. And we're supposed to want to continue this to some sort of conclusion. So we're going back over old episodes. You and I were revisiting some of the creator commentary. And there's a lot of uh, extra fat in some of those old episodes. So periodically, we want to release new episodes That's you and I sort of interjecting into the old episodes carving out the fat and, and still providing information for listeners just to keep the conversation alive and productive in some way.
3: And we are going to remove the other file, the other episode that came out in, I think it was July of 2019. And so this will be the one that stands uh, for record for the CrimeCon 2019, our panel. And yeah, we're gonna be coming back with uh, with more of these. Um, we're gonna revisit the uh, the answers that we got from law enforcement uh, soon. I think that would be interesting to revisit. Just kind of go over those again and read the questions that we didn't read, the ones that they didn't answer. I think that might be important now. I don't know. You know, I think, like you said, Lance, it's uh, keep the focus on Mora. Let's keep the conversation going. It's important. And Julie says it in her own words here. Keep keep talking about Mora.
1: Right. And, and keep listening. Keep listening to everything that you can listen to about Mora. Uh, not all of it is nonsense. A lot of it has some really good information. We know that some of the things that we say might be redundant, but if we're not redundant, then what are we? We're not talking at all. So we might as well just keep it going and, and make sure that this just reaches as many people as many times as possible.
3: Okay. And here is the first clip, Lance, and uh, and it is mostly Julie Murray speaking about her sister's disappearance.
1: So for the people who are not aware of Maura's case, um, Julie, can you give us the, uh, the broad strokes of her disappearance?
2: Yeah, so um, in February 2004, uh, Mara basically packed up her dorm room from UMass and drove up to New Hampshire. Um, we don't know why she went up there. Uh, nobody in my family knows why. Um, and it was about 7, 7.30 at night. Uh, she was in Woodsville and she spun her car uh, and landed on the side of the road. And in about a 15 minute window, she just disappeared. Um, there was multiple people that saw her. Um, there's one woman um, who was looking out her window, Mrs. Westman, and she called 911. There was also a bus driver that actually stopped and talked to her. Um, And, you know, he said that he asked her if she needed help and uh, she declined it and said that she had already called AAA. Um, But if anyone of you have been up there to the area, you'll know that there's no cell phone service. Um, So that was not true. Uh, So he went back and he also called 911. And by the time the cops came, um, she was gone. And so we've never heard from her. Uh, there's been no credible sightings. Um, she, there's been no uh, bank account activity. Uh, and it's just it's unbelievable. I mean, how does one person just disappear like that? Um, so nobody in my family knows where she is. Uh, and it's just really sad. And you know, I wish I could tell you, like, I, I knew she was going to New Hampshire for this reason or that reason, but I just don't know. Um, so that's kind of the crux of the case.
1: Now, there's a huge community out there, obviously, and, and of people who, are, who want to support the case and they want to help you in any way they can. What do you usually tell people when they reach out? Uh, and, and when did that start? When did you start noticing that?
2: Well, the number one thing that I say is keep talking about Mara because my family and I are so fortunate that I have a group uh, right here. I have this panel that are talking about Mara uh, because there's so many missing people that don't get a panel, that don't get talked about, that don't have an oxygen series, that don't have multiple blogs, that don't have podcasts, uh, and just you know, just vanish and, and no one, you know, continues that fight. So I thank you all for being here and continuing to talk about Mara, and that's the number one thing that I want everyone to know is just keep talking because somebody knows something.
1: Cool. And you mentioned um, the how sometimes people will go down these rabbit holes and things get a little contentious, <laughs> and, they, they escalate or they sort of crumble into some sort of uh, swamp of, of opinions that just don't really make any sense. How do you handle people? Do you ever get people reaching out to you with like strong opinions about what happened? And what do you do to um, kind of talk them back? Or is it, is it even worth it for you to do that?
2: Oof. That's a tough one. Um, Sorry, I should have saved that for a little later. Yeah, I mean, there are are many different theories. I mean, you guys probably all have your own theory. And, you know, once you start to to develop a theory, and Art can kind of speak to this too, once you, as an investigator, you're like, I know it's this guy, or I know she went there for this reason, or, you know, things like that. Um, It's hard to pull people back and say, well, did you look at it from this angle? And so, while you know, uh, developing a theory is great. You have to be open-minded. And for, you know, for people to come to me and say, I think it was this, or I think she went here, I think he or she is the one that did it. That's great, but you know, where is she? Like, she's, the case is still open. So that's a great theory, but let's, we need more, so.
5: Yeah, let me, jump in real quick i that is you know is great i I think the internet is is fantastic it provides a lot of information but you also kind of gotta wait through the bs when you're looking at this stuff and and really i always ask the same question okay what's does that information or is what you're telling me going to figure out what happened tomorrow where is she and that's what i always keep in the back of my head Uh, because you can get tied up in a lot of these rabbit holes and go down these different Conspiracy theories, but it doesn't get you to the point of what happened, what happened tomorrow, and, and one of the things that Maggie and I tried to do on the show was dispel a lot of those conspiracy theories that are out there. I'm not sure we did a, a, a good enough job, but we tried to touch on a lot of them out there um, and just show what the evidence, where the evidence takes us, and. And Julie's right. you got to have an open mind. You can't come up with a theory and then try to take bits and pieces of info and plug it in there so that it fits very nicely into your particular theory. You have to go where the evidence takes you and where the information takes you. And, and on this particular case, it's been very difficult because we don't have a body. We don't have a real crime scene. And it's, it's one of the more bizarre cases I've worked because in that short time period, somebody just disappeared off the face of the earth. Uh But I, 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 I also agree with Julie that somebody had to see something. Somebody knows something.
6: I also want to say, I was going to bring this up before, one of the more interesting things was in our interview with and when we said Butch Atwood was the last person to see her, he right. said, that you know of. So, you right. know, there were people who might have seen her after that.
4: So, where do you go at this point in the investigation? What, what, happens, what happens next? Where can you go?
5: I, I think that, that this team up here has, has really looked at all the, the facts in this, the, the facts that we know anyways, the, the stuff that we can confirm. Um, is there something new out there? I mean, you gotta have an open mind. You gotta look for new stuff out there. But I think at this particular point, all the stuff leading up to her actually disappearing has been beat over and over and over, and we we've actually have a fairly good timeline in our heads now for what happened to what happened that particular night. Um, I, I'm under the assumption, and I don't have any direct knowledge of this, but i I think this is one of these cases where maybe law enforcement knows exactly what happened, but they don't have enough evidence to take it to the AG's office to file a case. That's just sort of the opinion I get in talking to the law enforcement uh, people that have been involved in this case from, from the very beginning. Um, and it's frustrating, I know, Julie. It's 15 years, um, and, but every time I talk to the law enforcement side, they say this is a solvable case. And, you know, I sit there and go, we'll solve it. You know, let's get moving on this thing.
1: And here we have former U.S. Marshal Art Roderick. He was an integral part of the disappearance of Maura Murray. The television show that Oxygen Network aired in six parts. It covers Maura's case, the investigation. And I think it's important to note that it was an investigative show. They worked with law enforcement. Art worked with law enforcement. Maggie also worked with law enforcement and former law enforcement and witnesses. And that investigation carried on over past the date that the show uh aired its finale they're still working on it every day it's just not out there in the public eye
5: when we did the show we shot 300 hours of interviews that we did with i don't know 100 people maybe it was a lot <laughs> and and another 700 hours of what they call b-roll which is like scenery stuff to fill in the gaps and it's was whittled down to a six-hour show. Uh, we interviewed Julie for four hours, and 90 seconds actually showed up uh, on the uh, on the actual show itself. So, when you come down to the editing part, you know you not only want to get information and get the this, this story out um, about Maura Mora's life, but you also have to sell it to a network. So, there's got to be some entertainment. Uh, value to it and so it's hard to mix those two sometimes but I think it came out pretty well but it's but it's also very frustrating for us having conducted interviews and at least some of them went on for hours and then you see you know 30 some seconds of them to didn't even minute. make it
6: in like Chuck's interview right. didn't even make it yeah. in um, but it's kind of coming down to what you're saying Scott is like we did you know three years ago go through the black box and all this information and we came you know art and I's determination was Occam's Razor is the simplest answer for what happened to her. It's the simplest thing. You know, she gets in an accident. We think someone picked her up, and that was that. There's no crazy conspiracy. Um, so, and that's, that's kind of what we talked about, too. That might be the hardest thing right. to solve because who is, could be a stranger? No connection to her. No tandem driver, you know. it's um, That was probably one of the more devastating things that we came to that conclusion. Right. That's what happened.
3: And then, Lance, now we're talking a little bit about Cecil Smith, who was the first arriving officer on Maura Murray's accident scene.
1: Does everybody know who Cecil Smith was? He was the first arriving officer at the scene, and he committed suicide. And that's a great example to use. He, He was suffering from a condition that was affecting his mental health, and there's no known reason why. There's no note. There's and the way he killed himself is very tragic and it's brutal. And it's a great example because a lot of people will try to connect those two, like this man has a family, right? And he's, you know, he's a law enforcement official. He actually arrested Jeff Williams, who was the former chief of police for drunk driving. And a man who has never been in trouble in his life, people will start making the connection because it it happened really close to uh, when the the, uh, new lead was in February in the anniversary and people started making the connection like, the cops are onto him. He he offed himself because no, they didn't have all the information, and it's it was just really tragic to see the direction that went in. Yeah. But that, yeah. to your point, right. that, that is that is a threshold that he, you just he, can't. He talk was to.
5: really. I I was blown away when I read the uh, the obituary because I didn't realize that he served the country. He was uh, I believe Air Force or no, he was in the, it, the
2: ranger, it was Army ranger. Was he a ranger? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but he was
5: also in counterintelligence, right? I think so. And spoke a couple different languages. Um, and was in for quite a while, right? Mm -hmm. Like 30 years or something, 25, 30 years, something like that. Yeah, so I mean, uh, he had a hell of a background. um, And it just, it really is hurtful when you see some of the stuff that's been written about Cecil.
1: And next up is Julie Murray speaking about the search that took place in New Hampshire up around the crash site in April of 2019. And for anybody who's following the case knows that there was a press conference, they found nothing. But Julie goes through her emotions, her family emotions, what they expected, and what actually happened in this upcoming clip. So recently there was, uh, we just mentioned that search that happened in February. Um, can you guys, Julie, can you walk us through what happened uh, up in New Hampshire?
2: yeah so um, if you're not familiar, um, there was a dig up uh, very close to the accident scene um, in April was it april april, okay. april. Um, so the the reason why there was a dig was because early on in the case um, I want to say within six months of the accidents, a local came to my dad and gave him some information and basically said hey there's some local people saying that Mara is buried in a basement um, and so that's kinda of disturbing and so my dad you know told um, law enforcement and he and you know he gave that information to them and um, they I believe they checked it out but they didn't actually go into the house so um, we were told that they brought uh, either sent or cadaver dogs to that property um, and search the outside um, so my dad would continue to go and try to uh knock on that homeowner's door and say hey can I you know bring a dog through and just kind of clear this off and make sure that my daughter's not in your basement um, but he was never able to make that happen um, and then that particular house changed ownership uh and then My dad walked up all by himself one day, knocked on the door and said, hey, I'm Fred Murray, and my daughter went missing right over here, and there's a rumor that she's buried in your basement. Um, Do you mind if I bring a dog uh, to just go through? It'll take five minutes. Um, And they were so gracious, and they're like, absolutely. Um, And... I just want to highlight that, like how awesome that was for that particular family to be like, yeah, sure, come on in. I don't know you, and you're a stranger, and come on and bring a dog. And so we did, uh, and that dog um, hit. uh, And so when I say hit, it means it it, uh, alerted. it alerted. That's, yeah, it alerted in a spot in the basement, and so my dad was kind of, you know, this was generating some hope for him, um, because you know this was 14 plus years into this investigation, and we really didn't have any solid leads. So the next logical step was to get a second dog with a uh, a separate independent um, handler, and the second dog came in and alerted in the same uh, general area. Um, and so, then the next logical step was to get a ground-penetrating radar in there um, to go over that uh, cement in the basement. And the the GPR report showed an anomaly in the general area of where the two cadaver dogs hit. So that's that was really promising to my family. And so my dad packaged that up together with the help of many, you know, very helpful people that offered up their services pro bono, um, which happens a lot in this case, which is amazing um, to know that there's people out there that will do that, Um, and sent it off to law enforcement. um, And then eventually, it took law enforcement a little longer than we had hoped, uh, but they did go in. um, They did not allow us uh, on the property. When they did the dig, um, they had two representatives, probably more from the FBI uh, come in And they dug where the GPR um, anomaly was. So it was a kind of a smaller area, uh, and they dug straight down. And um, the dig dig didn't last very long, which was kind of a little bit concerning for for me um, because if you're going to do a thorough dig, I would think it would take a little bit longer. How long did it take? Um, They were there at 8 in the morning, and we were told that there would be a press conference we were told at noon that the press conference would be at 2. So uh my family and I went to the press conference which is at the courthouse and um kind of led the investigate or led the the briefing and basically said, you know, we didn't find her. Um and then that just kind of deflated my dad because you know he's 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 76 now and he's clinging on at anything and everything. So he was convinced and is convinced that she's in the basement. And any parent out there, I think, would do the same. Um, so he wanted them to core under um, the the um, oil like tank. Bathroom, yeah, oil yeah, tank. yeah. Just to kind of make sure she wasn't under there. Because if you're going to go to that extent to dig up a basement and and put a body in there and cement it back over, you may like put a water heater on top as well. Like it's kind of crazy and sick and sad, but that's, you know, a possibility. Um, so they didn't do that. So we were disappointed with that. And then we wanted them to core around uh, the other areas. And when I say core, I mean, I'm no expert, but it's basically like drill horizontally and um, look at the material and, and uh, they didn't do that. so. You know we don't really know <laughs> yeah it's it's sort of a
1: head scratcher because they had said that they had been there before with cadaver dogs, and that was they sort of backed uh, backed up on that a little bit by saying, well, we weren't in the house right right they had been in the uh, around the property, yeah. and the cadaver dogs did not hit when they were there, but you had two s- set of cadaver dogs that um, were alerted um, and then there was uh, the the anomalous uh, feature that was underneath the concrete turned out to be Pot,
2: well, Strelzen said it was a piece of pottery.
1: Right. It was a piece of pottery, which is, I mean, that's pretty common when people are doing, like, filler within concrete. They'll just, like, they'll fill it. I mean, we, we've seen a lot of weird things when we dug on a, another property. And, you know, you, you pull up something and you're like, what, what is it? Like, why is this here? And even Chuck West once said that he, he dug up a um, snowmobile. And we're like, why? why? Why did somebody bury a snowmobile? And he's like, I don't know, it's New Hampshire.
4: Yeah, he was like, he was like it's the North Country. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, uh, joking aside, the way they went about the uh, press conference and to come out and say there's nothing must have, I mean, I'm not related to Mora and I felt like that was a, a gut punch. Well, what did you guys, when you? because he told you guys separately, and then he went out to do the press conference. How did, like... Where was your head at?
2: Well, it's been at this point it was 15 years, and so we want we want closure. I want closure for my dad. That's the most important thing. And so it was a gut punch to me to see my dad receive that news, Um, and he's still convinced that there's something there. And so you know, in a case like this where there's nothing, you've got to follow what you have. And two cadaver hits and a GPR anomaly was pretty convincing evidence I thought. (laughs) Seems pretty connective. (laughs) Yeah I have a relation or I'm trying to have a relationship with law enforcement because my my dad uh, is a bulldog and he's a father of a missing child and he's he's doing what he's he thinks is is right and I think it's right what he's doing but I need to come in and and establish some sort of line of communication with law enforcement and my friend Maggie here helped me kind of convince me of that and so I want to I want to be open with law enforcement I wouldn't say it's a good or bad relationship but it is some sort of relationship and I think that's important and I'm willing to to do that.
0: Buenos dias world from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance I'm Marco Wint and I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: And uh, Chuck West is of the uh, New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit, in in case that wasn't clear. Um what have you uh, spoken with the owners um since that search in April about getting back in there?
2: We haven't. We're very delicate with them because we we don't want to overstep our grounds. It's it was very invasive already. I mean, there was there was I don't know, like 25 people on their property. Um there was FBI, there was like You know, it looked like a crime scene, and we don't even know if it really was. There was helicopters, there was news crews, and they didn't ask for that. And none of those neighbors there asked for any of this. Um, And so we're very sensitive to um, the neighbors there, and we don't want to be a thorn in their side any more than we already are. So to answer your question, no, we haven't um, gone back to them, but that's not to say that we won't.
1: And I just have one more question about this whole, uh, the whole new lead and how they handled it. Um, Art, from a law enforcement perspective, do you, have you ever seen anything like that? And is there a precedent that, that you can, like, speak For to that particular search?
5: Or just, like... The way it was handled. Yeah.
1: yeah a 15-year investigation, and then they have a press conference yeah, to announce nothing?
5: I, I think it's different in every jurisdiction, and, and some jurisdictions you know whether it's county state or federal will be a lot more open in talking with the family and to pass information back and forth uh, this particular case I think because of a lot of stuff that's been generated on the internet that's been conspiracy theory driven um, I think law enforcement is a little more hesitant to share a lot of information out there um, you know we it's kind of like a broken record here but when when law enforcement is out there, passing out a lot of information that generally means they don't have any good leads Uh, if they're quiet then they're working on something pretty good Uh, and that's something you should keep whenever you hear these press conferences on recent cases that are coming out uh, that's the first thing I always say listen to what they're not saying and and that'll give you an indication as to whether or not they're looking looking at something really good as opposed to hey this this is all the information we have then you know they're they're, they're in trouble. They, they don't have any leads to move on further. So it's different in every jurisdiction. Some are better. We're working a hundred-piece puzzle and we only have probably 60 pieces. Uh, they have all the pieces. And uh, I understand from a from an investigative and prosecutive perspective that they don't want to share everything because some stuff they have to keep for the trial and have to keep to check on, on you know, when they're doing uh, specific interviews. But... Uh, yeah, it's different, and it's different everywhere. I mean, you can talk, you can put ten families together, and you get ten different, uh, ten different versions of how they interact with law enforcement.
3: And this is where we open it up for questions to the great people, the CrimeCon audience.
1: So we got a mic there in the middle, and if anybody's in the front, we could probably turn that mic around. to. And there
6: is one thing I do want to add about about how Julie mentioned, you know, maybe we'd go back and do GPR. After CrimeCon last year, I was so inspired by all of you guys and talked to Julie and these guys up here, and we did start a GoFundMe to do, you know, GPR, cadaver dogs, any kind of searches or anything that the family would need. Um, Since last year, we've raised about $10,000.
1: Yeah, it's just under $10,000, and we use a little bit for the other searches, so it, it definitely has come in handy.
6: Um, and it 's all you know for the family, whatever they want, if you know law enforcement isn 't going to do something, and they want to do it. So if you do want to help or do anything like that, there is a GoFundMe that we do have.
5: Hi, um, I feel like on one of the
4: shows that I 've seen was there a rag found in her tailpipe of her vehicle?
2: Yes, um, that is another very strange piece to this case. There was a rag found in her tailpipe. Um, the car that Mara was driving was my dad's old car. Um, he had just purchased a new car. He buys the same car over and over and over and over and over again. Um, and still to this day he, uh, he does the same thing. But anyway, the car was old and she should not have been driving it. And he told her, don't drive this car, right? So Mara was very, very smart. Um, but sometimes she didn't make the best common sense decisions. Um, and so I don't know why she got in the car uh, to drive it all the way up from UMass to New Hampshire. Um, but one of the things my dad told her, if you do have to drive this car, if you put a rag in the tailpipe, it will prevent um, smoke coming out of the back so that you can get to where you're going before you get pulled over by the cops. Um, and so I think that may have been the reason why she put the rag in the tailpipe. It doesn't make any sense. Um, and she should not have been driving that car, but that is the reason why there was a rag in the tailpipe. I think Art can speak to this yeah. we, a little we, bit more. We
5: actually, for the show, we actually ended up buying a Saturn from the same time period. Um, and uh, we hooked up with a, a garage um, in Hanover area, I think. Yeah. And um, we, we tested it and, and we actually had him knock out one of the cylinders and I drove the thing around for a while and it ran okay, it spit and sputtered, and you know you could tell there was something definitely wrong with the vehicle. But we put the rag in the tailpipe, and I think within two minutes it blew out of there, the minute you put your foot on the exhaust. So our theory from that, walking away from that, was is when she hit the, um, got into the car accident, I think she tried to start the car because it was drivable. She could have, if she could have started the car, she probably would have been able to drive away. And, and I think from what her father Fred told her is that maybe she stuck the rag in the tailpipe hoping she could get the car started again and leave, leave the particular scene. And that's why the rag was in the tailpipe. Could she have driven all the way from UMass with that rag in the tailpipe? I don't think so because, I mean, it was like almost immediate. That thing blew out of there like a rocket. Uh, And we stuffed that thing right up. We got it
6: to 3,000 RPMs, and it was just...
5: Yeah, and mm -hmm. it just blew out of there, and we stuffed that thing up as far as we could uh, into the the muffler exhaust itself, and it blew out of there within a minute.
1: It's a really interesting... Part of Morris's case, when you're looking at it for at first, and the rag and the tailpipe—it's such a fascinating, mysterious uh, element to the whole thing, and it, it makes you think: Did someone meet her? And that's where your brain goes. Really right? plays with your imagination. Yeah. yeah, did someone meet her at the gas station, and they put the rag in the tailpipe so they they knew that she would stall out? But the the simple, like linear facts are. Her dad told her to do this, to stop the, to maybe stop the car from smoking, like around campus, like, yeah. like driving around UMass and just like locally if you need to get by a cop and you don't want to get pulled over. So she gets to this part of, of her journey and she spins out and she's hung up and she's trying to get the car started. She's trying to get it out. And we have an account of activity by the trunk. So she goes back there. Right. She, I mean, it literally says everything except for saying, I saw her put the rack in the tailpipe. Everything's there. So it, it says activity by the trunk. Her dad told her to do this. And it just makes sense that she would try to do that to get the car started. And it was a mistake.
4: And probably way too coincidental that someone else put it there <laughs> besides <laughs> yeah. Mora. you know? Yeah, I
1: mean, that's it. Exactly. Like, it, honestly, like, what are the odds of pulling into a gas station and someone's like, that girl? I'm it, gonna put a rag in that tailpipe. Right. Like that is insane. That's a, when, when you look at the actual like simple fact. that well, I mean, based on your test, it sounds like
5: she would have been able to get in the car and drive away, and the rag would have shot yeah. out. have so so shot out immediately. immediately. Right,
6: yeah. and that was disproving that like that someone put it in and she drove with it in. You know. Right.
5: It's I, I, you know, in, just generally in criminal investigations, you get stuff like this all the time, and it sends you up a wall because then you got to kind of account for what what the hell is the rag in the tailpipe doing but in every investigation you come across this stuff, nothing goes in from A to Z directly. There's all these little twists and turns that you have to account for in any criminal investigation, and in this one, there's, there's a few, <laughs> more than a few. Yeah.
1: And in the last section, we take another question. Uh, they talk about the expansion of the search into Canada, and Art also addresses uh, Butch Atwood. So here's the last bit of that panel.
6: And you mentioned Canada. That's something that was kind of going through my mind: is has this search expanded into Canada? Um, whether the scent dogs, because there was, as uh, far as I know, there was a scent picked Architech up in the woods, um, and that had dropped. But I'm just curious because we know how close that part of New Hampshire is to Vermont, all, all tied into Canada. So Art, yeah. just- right, do you want to talk about the yeah, yellow? Notice? Yeah,
5: yeah. Real, real quickly. Um, One of the things we did get the uh, state police to do is they um, went to Interpol and got what's called a yellow notice, which is a missing person notice. And they broadcast that out to 190 countries uh, around the world, all members of Interpol, obviously Canada being the one we concentrated on. Um, So all the information is in the system. The Canadians know about it. Um, I've actually talked to Interpol on a couple different occasions. And, and they are coordinating the case with Canada, but nothing has come up. I mean, they've, they've done the right thing and entered DNA profiles, you know, whatever information they had went into the system. Uh, so the yellow notice is out there. I think you can actually publicly go online and look at it. I, I haven't done that in a while, but um, it came out fairly quickly after we started the, started the whole interview process. Yeah.
4: Okay, another question? Yeah, so this is more of a kind of cultural thing for Julie. Um, is it normal in your family like, to do hitchhiking? Like, would it be like
6: super frowned upon by your family if there was any hitchhiking if needed, like in a situation like this?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, and I, I haven't heard that question before, so thank you for that. Uh, hitchhiking was not normal in my family. Period. Like yeah. <laughs> she would never do that. I would never do that. Nobody in my family would hitchhike. Um, my my parents taught us early on that, you know, you know the normal things parents teach you. Don't talk to strangers. There's no way she would have hitchhiked. Yeah. No. Hi. Um.
6: I'm, I apologize. I came late. I'm not sure if you already answered this or talked about it. Um. I just want to know because there was no footprints in the snow. Um, and I've asked my parents, my parents are both police, so I, I was just wondering, um, when and how was Butch Atwood cleared and, and why? Because he was <laughs> the last person to see her alive and there's no footprints away from I don't know if I would say cleared, mm. but... Yeah. Um, okay, because
5: that's the one thing
6: that There's never been a suspect, it. and we're, it, we're unsure you know, who was cleared and not cleared, but yeah. He
4: yeah. called police. Yeah. Um, Ten minutes later, or something like that, after he saw her, yeah. um, so the timeline is in- incredibly close. If he were uh, guilty of anything, and he also had his mom and his common law wife living right. with him, so they might have seen something too. It's just w- when you break it down, it seems pretty unlikely that it's Butch Atwood.
2: And that unfortunately, said, though, oh
6: sorry. Sorry. Did they check the house and everything? Did they go to his
4: house? I don't know.
5: Yeah, they did. Well, initially Cecil did uh because he actually asked bush to help him look for uh butch to help him look for her so you had uh john monahan who's a state trooper who spent maybe three minutes to five minutes at the scene never got out of his vehicle talked to cecil smith and he just continued back down the road towards the uh convenience store and was looking along the road there and then i think butch also headed in that yeah. direction down to the little uh
2: French
5: pond yeah yeah housing complex that was down there
2: no,
5: um yeah I agree I don't think Butch has been 100% cleared but he passed away yeah I don't you know, know when he passed away it was a couple yeah, of years yeah, I can't remember but he's he's dead now and um uh it just seemed to me in talking to law enforcement about it they don't bring Butch up that often which kind of leads me to believe that maybe they think he probably didn't have anything to do. Well, with Well,
6: again, and when we said to Strelzin, he was the last person. Strelzin was like that you know of.
5: Yeah, and he did give a couple of interviews. Oh, he was really
1: both. Yeah, he did. one yeah. of my one of my favorite articles is from the uh, yeah. <laughs> Area Man Laments. <laughs> Love that article. It's uh, from Great. the Caledonian Record, and it's uh, Area Man Laments: Events of February Fourth. Um, sorry, uh, February Ninth, and um, and he he genuinely in the article seems very frustrated with the fact that he doesn't remember details and that he didn't um, insist on, on her coming to, like, get in the, like, you need to get out of the road. He, he wrote it off the way, even, even the way law enforcement wrote it off in the beginning right. where it was a simple one-car accident and she was probably drinking. You know, that that's I don't I can't speak for a butch because he's not here, but you know, that that article if you get a chance to read that, you you might walk away saying, It's just sort of a dude who just is kind of upset at himself for not, you know, in, in hindsight not doing what he would have really wanted to
2: do.